Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. On the show today, we have Dr. Danielle Beal. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Thanks for having me, Ben. I'm excited to have you. Um, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the lands of the Talaman, Comox, Lahaklehus, and Homokal First Nations, who I keep saying we're one nation before we separated in the reserves, but I'm starting to wonder if that's exactly accurate. And it's something I'm going to be looking up. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was editing. I was, I've been saying that every podcast, and this could be wrong. Um, but I think they were. They're all definitely together, you know, without borders for sure. But were they actually one community? I'm not 100% sure. But I've been saying that a lot, so i got to look at like look at that. Um, uh, today is... Um, uh, Important day when it comes to uh, Indigenous peoples. Uh, today's May 5th, the day of this recording, and you'll notice I'm wearing red today. Uh, I took this off of the Instagram page of Dr. Autumn Blackdeer, who's a Indigenous social worker who's doing just some really amazing work. She's coming on the podcast. We've got it. We've got her interview booked. Excited. She's doing, she does some amazing research. Uh, anyway. I'm just reading what she posted on her on her Instagram page. May 5th is the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. We wear red today to honor the spirits of our loved ones who have journeyed on and to call back call those back home who are still missing. And then she gets some stats here. More than more than four and five Native women experience violence in their lifetime. Uh, apologies, folks, if this is triggering. I, I should have give a warning first i didn't realize what i was reading uh murder is the third leading cause of death among native women and girls aged 10 to 24 40 uh, percent of victims of sex trafficking are identified as american indian or alaska native women and the red hand uh you'll see you probably folks will see the, the red hand there's a lot of indigenous women in photos have a have a red hand covering their mouth it's like a, it's like a painted handprint and the red hand is a symbol of relatives whose voices are not heard of the silence from media and law enforcement and the ongoing oppression of indigenous peoples then she shared some resources the strong hearts native helpline 18447 native i keep forgetting autumn is american um i'm gonna share i'll share in the show notes there's uh there's a canadian uh, version of that number the the uh Indian Residential School Helpline. Also, the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, uh, www.csvanw.org, and the Sovereign Bodies Institute, www.sovereign-bodies.org. And then I'll also share, um, uh, there's another website um, uh, on the national, uh, on the missing and murdered women sort of inquiry that kind of happened. Um, um, it was two years ago and action plan that came out of that and things spoken folks can do so that's why today i'm i'm wearing red and uh, again grateful to be here um and uh yeah we'll leave it at that um 
So back to our guest, Danielle. Reason why I brought Danielle on the podcast today, I invited Danielle on the podcast today. Very kindly agreed to come on. Um, was not specifically out of anything specific she had done, but you know, I've, I've seen lots of cool things you've done for sure, and uh, looking forward to getting into some of that. But uh, folks know I've had a lot of guests from a lot of different backgrounds on the podcast. Um, and, uh, I've had, I think, gosh, maybe somewhere between 12 and 15, uh, folks that identify as black or African-American on the podcast. And I, I need, I need to go back and listen, but a good chunk of them, uh, have mentioned Danielle as an influence, an important influence in their lives. And many more that you know I haven't had on the podcast that are on my list to ask have also, um, and and she's clearly had a a, a powerful influence on these folks. Um, uh, Adrian Bradley, most recently, I think. Um, no, actually, it was one, there was someone else since Adrian, but she she was you know shouting out your name a lot as as, as just a really important um, person in her life and, 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 and the way she going and just the people that I've had on are just all amazing people in their own right. Who are, I think, who are going to be thanked themselves one day, uh, by other people that I have on, uh, but all roads seem to lead, lead back to Danielle. Um, um, uh, as well as, uh, as, as Dr. Nasia, uh, the both of you have really, I think, uh, been on the forefront of, of, you know, everything good for black folks in our field. Um, and certainly, you know, I think beyond that as well, I'm sure I, I'm only exposed to the behavior analysis side of, of your work. So I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other folks that, uh, uh are, are saying the same thing. So today we're just gonna, I'm just gonna learn about why, try to figure out why, uh, why Danielle is so cool. Um, <clears throat> um, so thanks for coming on. <laughs> thanks for having me. That was, that was really, um incredible and really sweet Ben thank you and um thank you to all the people who um just said my name in a room that I wasn't that I wasn't um and that's that's really spectacular um and thank you for honoring um the native woman and taking time um in each episode you know that's a newer kind of addition to your show but I think it's really important to honor the people before us and to honor um, their contributions and their lives. And so thank you for just taking time to learn and honor them. Absolutely. So I would like to start with a, a story, an origin story. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I need to start doing this disclaimer as well. A lot of, when, I, when I ask this question, a lot of folks try to paraphrase or make it short or they don't want to tell the long version um, and I, I love the long version. So, you know, you, you tell whatever you want to tell, of course, but, um, I, I really think, uh, I, like when I hear podcasts, especially from, you know, people that have, you know, had an influence on me, I think it's fun to hear everything about kind of how they got to where they got, because some, because the stories aren't, especially when you talk to like folks that have been in the field for like, you know, 50 years, um, their original story is, you know, as fumbled and 
you know, and troubled and, and mistake ridden as all of ours. And, um, and, and hearing those, I think, are, are you know, it, you know it, it, uh, I think it, it's grounding to know that, you know, these folks that we think are almighty, uh, you know, they all came from, you know, the same place as, as, as we did in, in some way or another. Uh, maybe not the same place, but they all came from, they all had similar experiences to, to what a lot of us have had. So, um, again, you, you, of course, judge the length to whatever you want, but I'd love to just hear kind of how you got, you know, into into, into the ABA field for sure. But it, it sounds like you do a, a lot of other things, too. So I, I imagine there'll be some intersections in this story to kind of how you got to the work you're doing now. Yeah. So um, I actually, I, I, I was sharing with you, I'm newer to podcasts in the past, you know, three years, I think like a lot of us. And I love hearing the humans, like I like hearing their lives and not just the work they do, but, but who they are. That's really yeah. important to me. And so I, I'm very intentional about like, <clears throat> There's a person behind the labor um, and that person actually makes me a really good laborer. So I enjoy hearing those stories too. Um, so I started in the field when I was 19. I had just moved down to Long Beach State. Um, and I had a woman who, um, she's like a mom. She dropped me off and we'll get into that story a little bit later. She dropped me off at Long Beach State with a brand new luggage set and said, be great. And um, and so I, I started school and um, got pregnant um, in the summer between because I had to do a summer bridge program. Mm. Um, that's, I, I guess, pretty common in, in the Cal State in the CSU system out here. Um, and in that program, met a boy, told me I was pretty, got pregnant. And so at the beginning of my first semester, I was pregnant. Um, that was a pretty devastating kind of journey, which I'm sure we'll talk about, mm -hmm. but needed a job and answered a call to work with a little boy with autism, had no idea what autism was, um, showed up. I was very pregnant, seven or eight months. Mm -hmm. um, and when I pulled up to the family's house, um, the little boy had run out the house and then the mom chased after him and then their dog, Charlie chased after them oh and she was like, catch him. And so here I am very, very pregnant <laughs> running down a very busy street. Um, we literally tackled him in the middle of the road and brought him back to the house. And she, we had like weeds and grass in our hair and she was like, you're hired. You're going <laughs> to be a mom. This is great. Um, and she showed me this big log book. Um, and, and I should preface the story by saying that back then, um, there weren't like agencies like we know them today, actually regional centers out here provided early intervention services for autism mm. and they gave parents a stipend every month and the parents had to hire the independent contractors to come in and work with their children. The parents actually trained um the staff to work wow. with their children and so she showed me the logbook and said this is our bible everything that we're teaching this little boy is in this book learn it front and back and within two weeks I absolutely fell in love with the science it was the first time in my life I had experienced um structure there was joy in being able to work with this little boy he was like 
a year or something like a year and a half like he was just mm. a baby 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 um and the joy I felt when I could make him laugh and when he would like want to engage with me and hug me and um it was just such a joyful experience and so within two weeks there were two other aides on the case mm. and they had had it the the family was pretty um challenged in a lot of ways and so they both decided to quit when they saw that I could handle um, the behaviors and the mom and and the dynamics of the family. And so within two weeks, I was carrying back then a 40-hour program. Mm. Um, and I, I absolutely loved it. I gave birth to my baby. Um, and I was able to bring her to work with me. And I would rock her in her car seat with my foot while I was doing DTT with mm. him at the table. That, that was the structure of what ABA programming looked like. Um, and then my second semester, my mom died and mm. um, and I had my little brother. And so he would come to work with me. And mm. so I just wow. was thick of like learning the science and, and doing this work. And then other families had heard about me in the area and had hired me on. And I just, I fell in love and mm. I knew really early on, I was good at what I did. I knew I always wanted to work with children. Um, I didn't know in what capacity I remember telling my, I, I call her my godmom, um, the woman who kind of took me in when I was a teenager. Um, I remember telling her I'm going to go to school because I didn't, I didn't know I wanted to go to college. I didn't know that, that I, I, I had a plan for my life. And she was like, you're not staying in Victorville. You're not, you're going to go do something great. And so she's the one who got me into college. And so when I got there and I, you know, was pregnant. She was disappointed, of course. And mm. she's like, what are you going to do with your life? And I'm like, I'm just going to open up a daycare and I'm going to like have babies and I'm going to like take care of the babies. And she's like, absolutely not. You're doing something. And so when I found the science, I, I knew that it was something that I, I wanted to do. It just it was absolutely perfect and what I needed in that time in my life. Mm. I'm just imagining. Uh, I, I don't. I, I guess I'm guessing this is not how it was, but I'm just imagining every time there's a new staff coming, this mother releasing her child from the door to go on the highway, and whoever catches the kid gets the job. Yeah. <laughs> and that's her. That's her hiring process. And yeah, those yeah. are the days. I. You know what? And I've never heard that before. But that's funny. I should ask her. Is that like? Did she set me up? Because yeah. the way she hired me, it just it was like yeah. you're. Like you're yeah. great. Like you yeah. tackled him. Yeah. And, and, all, right, and, all right, Billy. It's time to run. Watch out for yeah. traffic and get ready for the tackle, like we always do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And we and we literally it took us years and years and years um, right. before we were able to get him to not um, elope out of out of areas. But, yeah, 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 yeah. You said you fell in love with the science, but this was parents teaching independent folks like who where 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 did the science come from like who, who yeah you know what i mean yeah good question so the, i don't i back then i actually just had lunch with my first supervisor um wow. i won't say her name because i don't know if she's okay with me saying her sure. name but um we just had lunch like a few weeks ago and and she was just overjoyed at like watching you know where my career has gone cuz it, it's mm. been 25 years yeah um but back then, so I don't, I don't know this, the, the, the specifics, but what I do remember is that there was a supervisor assigned to the case 
And back then the supervisor would come out every two weeks and we'd have what was called a workshop. And it would be like Saturday and Sunday, she would come out with all mm. the aides and the parents and the, and mm. the kiddo. And we would run programs like all day. And then she would give us feedback. And that feedback was, I think now looking back and how our science has grown was very arbitrary. Oh, you did that. That was good. Try this next time. Or don't ever do that again. That's not mm. the right thing to do. Um, but it was all reactive, right? Some of mm. it was proactive, but it was really like, trial by fire um yeah. and parents were really involved i mean this mom was involved every step of the way i mean she was in programming with us and deciding on what we were um you know teaching mm. her children and she lived with like other people in the home and they were involved and it just it was such a organic and like when i look back at that time i mean i always joke that i think the ethics code was like was like created for like clinicians like us because back then there weren't rules it was before the board was even you know established and I always like to tell this story that he used to work to put like gas in my car like that was his like he he would earn dollars and mm. then like to pump the gas and oh my gosh yeah and so we used to like drive you know I used to he used to have sleepovers with my daughter they like grew up together they're still friends to this day they actually graduated together wow. um and so yeah I, I I joke that like the ethics code was was created because of how we ran um <laughs> services back then but but our supervisor came in and and she would like come in twice a month and and give us feedback and that's how we learn to kind of structure what we were doing a little bit with more succinctly wow but you probably wouldn't be able to bring your daughter and brother to work anymore right no no, no, no not yeah. these days nope no yeah. I, I i imagine we wouldn't be able to like have children like earning you know money to put gas and like like i imagine that that won't be allowed either yeah that that's uh I mean, they're not actually, they're just, they, they're just, they just want to do this. He just wanted to do the pumping, right? Like he wanted yeah. to, you know, he, that, want, I mean, he wanted the whole thing. Like yeah. he wanted to like lift it out. He yeah. wanted to push the like 97 or whatever that yeah. number is. He wanted to watch the total go up, right? Yeah. He was really highly motivated for like $15 of like putting gas. And back then you could fill up a tank with $15. Um, but the whole process, like he enjoyed thoroughly. Yeah. I mean, it was his highest reinforcer at that yeah. time. Yeah, no, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, it makes me wonder. Like, I feel like some of that stuff should still be happening. But, but we're not allowed to, but it's not allowed. Like, I mean, it's organic, right? Like it it's, is. It's like this is. I mean, even like when I think about you know, because I I didn't say this. He wasn't pumping gas at a year and a half. I <laughs> I was with him for sure. years and years and years. Yeah. Um, and so we grew up together. Really, I always yeah. say like these. I grew up with these families yeah. with him. Um, and oh shoot, I lost my my train of thought about reinforcement organic learn oh so like my daughter she'd be in dance class and he would like 
come with us, right? And and he would see something that another student had or another child had, and he would have a tantrum and mm. I'd have to like work. But even that was like, talk about generalization. Like yep. we were dealing with real life stuff, like cops Absolutely. were called, right? Like here I am a black therapist, this little boy was not black. He had mm. some very choice words to describe <clears throat> what he thought of me when he was unhappy. Right. Society didn't know about autism or the behaviors. And so they would just see this little boy very, very upset. The police mm -hmm. would be called. I was constantly having to like, you know, say like call his mom or back then I think Taka gave out cards that said, my child has autism. If you have any questions, call this number. I'm working through a behavior, right? And I, I would literally hand those out like to the people at the dance studio and then we'd have to actively work on safely de-escalating him, which mm -hmm. leads me to what I'm doing today. But that was embedded in the fabric of how I showed up was making sure that he was safe, that his dignity remained intact, and that we were really working through real life complications. Like mm -hmm. it wasn't this structured kind of, yeah. not that there's anything wrong with what we're doing today but back then it was like i mean they were high stakes right and and this is what generalization is there was mm -hmm. you know and i had to preserve like my daughter and and my brother right yeah. and it's a whole kind of dynamic that i just i i don't know i can't imagine anyone kind of working under those conditions today it would just be interesting to sort of compare i mean you can't do it but to compare sort of the outcomes of of this fella you know, to the same outcomes of someone that age now who's been through programming with our ethics code. And, mm -hmm. and you know, because I, I think about sort of most of my work's been in group homes with adults. And, uh, you know, it's a very often a very, you know, sterile, you know, institutional environment. Um, you know, there aren't really a lot of, there, there, there are exceptions, but there aren't really a lot of really good staff client relationships, especially now with post COVID and staffing is just so impossible. But I remember there was one fella who I knew in the system from, you know, a very young age to into his forties. Um, um, and really you know, sort of well-known for, you know, challenging behavior and, you know, severe, severe stuff. And, uh, uh, and uh, anyway, there was one fella, his, his day program worker, who he was perfect with Monday to Friday, nine to five, eight to four, whatever, happy, not just like If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is daughter. I loved being with. Um, he would go to his go to his house every weekend for barbecues. He was part of the family in a lot of ways, kind of like you describe. And he was just his happiest. He was his, his best self in, in, in sort of, you know, these contexts and, you know, I spent some time actually trying to see if we could get him just to move out of the group home into his home. Um, uh, but I won't get into why that couldn't work, but, um, and it just made me think, you know, it just makes you think of your story and, and how, 
you know, and the whole kind of it takes a village and, and some of these sort of community approaches and some of the conversations I've had with behavior analysts in Africa where, where you know, it's, uh, I heard one story in Senegal, I think episode nine or 10 or something. And uh, they were talking about how there was this autistic kid in this small Senegalese community. And, uh, you know, there's no such thing as elopement because the kid could just run from house to house and he would just, and the doors were all open. He could just go inside whatever house and every, every parent, every family would say, Oh, Hey, so-and-so and and welcome him in. And so Ah. he, he would never get lost, you know, uh, he would never go missing, whereas, you know, here he would be lost and missing, but in the exact same context with the exact same sort of proximity of homes and so on and so forth. He just wasn't, you know, he just wasn't accepted. And and so yeah. it just makes me think about sort of, you know, you know, our, our, you know I'm not encouraging people to, you know, in, invite your clients home and um, and that sort of thing because that would be unethical and I'm offering BACB CEUs today uh, but but uh, but it just makes me wonder sort of you know have we have we gone too far in the other direction you know well I, I just I I think I I was on another podcast um, Rosie Eats um, right. and she had offered a perspective that I never considered, you know, and she was kind of taken aback, kind of like, like you are about how it was and how organic, I, I, I call it organic because yeah. there weren't kind of guidelines. Right. And we had to figure it out together. Like, but she offered this perspective that I grew up with those families. Right. And wasn't just like me offering this to them, but like what they offered to me. So being able to like, you know, have my daughter and my brother come to work and be typical peers, right. And help with generalization programs and maintenance programs. And it was such an authentic and organic, I, I, I don't have another word. So forgive That's me. That's a good word. Yeah. Um, and to this day, we're still family. Like those first few families that I work with my daughter is now going to be 25 in June and Hmm. and those children that I worked with are now like 27 and 26 and right and and we're still like family get-togethers like you know they came to my wedding and they now know I have a six-year-old and um that time wasn't just about the science or this therapy be right it and that's I think what makes me different and I've always had an issue kind of with the constructs of ABA in that way this red tape I've always from day one because I'm a human first and this is a baby and these are people's children and you know when you put these rules around kind of these interactions I understand them and and I want to make this clear I'm not saying we should do away with this I'm not saying that at all please don't come for me and pump your fist but I've always centered the babies that I was serving and the children and understanding I'm I'm a developmentalist I'm a child developmentalist right and and then I'm also like just tuned in to being a mom right like I've been a mom my whole life and parents don't want like these boundaries right they want to know that people actually love their babies right and and to this day i'm i'm getting emotional you'll have to forgive me i mm. I'm, I'm oftentimes just overly emotional um they really are thankful for the love that they mm. knew that i had 
for their children. And I, I do think that that human, that, that human kind of interaction um, is missing in a lot of how we're delivering services today. And again, I'm not saying that we should undo all of that, but it is, I think, a lot to be considered. Totally. I mean, I mean, let's let, let's be frank. Our our field, you know, for for folks that are supposed to be working working with human behavior, we're not very good at human interaction. <laughs> I think so many marks are missed. I see yeah. it all the time. I'm just like, whoa, like. Like I literally had to tell a teacher the other day, like who was insistent that she wasn't going to let this child win. And I, and everyone's worked up and, and I literally am sitting in the room flabbergasted like I am like daily. And I sat to a room full of like doctors and masters, right? Like educators and child developmentalists. We're talking about a four-year-old. Right. And then everyone's looking at me like, like we can all this stuff that you're bringing out and yes. And yet, but mm. the bottom line is she's four. Like, <laughs> like I, I, it just, so many marks are missed, Ben. So many. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So we, we got that you love the field and, and, and you got this passion uh, but you're Doctor Beal, so there's there's still more to this story. Um, what's so much what, more. what 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 happened once you're you know yeah. you kind of got into it started started liking it. I mean, I saw you you've got this undergrad degree in in uh, in child development and mm -hmm. uh, and and a minor in communication disorders, which yep. fits fits nicely. So, um you got that degree are you assuming you kept doing this work while you were doing that degree yeah so um the first time I, I remember my supervisor like getting letters behind her name and I didn't know what those letters were mm. I remember asking her um like what are you doing and mm -hmm. she was at Cal State LA I believe um she worked under Lovas um which is crazy to think about when we were, when I started in the field, we were still allowed to like smack the table. Of course we didn't, I didn't, um, but we were still allowed to smack the table and or smack knees when we were delivering inspir uh, informational nose, which is, which is mind boggling mm. to me. Um, but her and her cohort had kind of come out um, of that program and decided to start a company. I was one of their first employees and I was watching her kind of move through this process. And I, I, I was like, I want to set up a lunch date. I remember like being so like intimidated. I want to set up a lunch date. And I really like what I see you doing. Like, and I had always been, so since that two weeks that I started, I then became the lead therapist. And so I was working closely with the supervisors mm. and that just meant that I was the one crunching the data collection and the log books. I was the one moving programs along. I was the one mastering them off. We, I was running like the team meetings that we had. Um, so I'd always kind of taken on a leadership role. 
And so I remember telling her, like, I love what you do. Like, what do I need to do? And she was like, eventually, because, and I think at that time, the board was just starting to kind yeah. of define um, the stipulations. And she was like, you're probably going to have to go back to school. And that I was like, okay, I'm never going to, I'm never going to like be a supervisor. Like, yeah, yeah. Because I was in the midst of my bachelor's degree. I mentioned I got pregnant my first semester. I was living in the dorms. My mom died my second semester. I adopted my little brother. I was homeless Ben, like for a time, like school. The only reason I finished school was because I had a pretty traumatic, traumatic childhood. I just, I had to do something different than my mom because yeah. I was walking in her footsteps. She had me at 19. Um, she actually like has a pretty traumatic history and I, my whole life, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew what not to do. And that's mm. what my mom did. And so for me, graduating was like it. If I can just get to this finish line, then I will not be like my mom. So that's the only reason why I finished literally putting one foot in front of the other I was still doing the ABA work um I'm not a quitter so at no point did I ever think that like I would stop um going to school it took me seven years to complete my undergrad um which is just absolutely crazy but I did it and I thought that was the biggest thing I was ever going to do with my life um, and then when my supervisor told me that at some point I'd have to get a master's, I was like, no way, Jose, like, I'll just do this for the rest of my life. But then as I advanced in my career, um, I was always, um, kind of able to get promoted because I had a specific skill set. So people, my supervisors, I always say that I had a really horrific time in the field. Um, lots of stuff that we might get into, um, my first supervisor was actually the kindest person to me along my career. And so I want to, we had lunch the other day. And she's like, you always talk about the negative stuff. And she was like, and then I, you know, it leaves me wondering where I fit in. And I was like, thank you for that feedback. I can really like set you aside because she was a gem and a light in my career. But as I moved through my career, people noticed, or my employer, my employers noticed that um, I was good with, with the children and the families and that that was an asset, but I was troublesome in other areas. So I was always like kind of reinforced a little bit for these things, but highly, highly punished for these other things. Mm. And so um, as I was kind of moving through, I was supervising school district cases. And then there was like a strict mandate that said, if you want to stay in school districts, you have to have a master's. And so I always say, I accidentally went back to get my master's as a matter of survival. I couldn't imagine losing my job. I loved what I did. I loved the flexibility I had. I was able to take my daughter everywhere with me still. She would come to work with me. I, I literally was a single parent. And you know, and, and my brother had to come. And, and so I accidentally went back to school and got my master's. I was like working all day and going to school until 10, 11 o'clock at night. And they do their homework while I was in school. And we go home, sleep for a few hours, get back up and do it all over again. It was just, it was absolutely nuts. Um, and just kept working in the field diligently. And my little trench hole is what I call it. And then Somewhere along the way, um, I opened up Loving Hands after I passed the boards, which is a really horrific journey. Um, 
and had been in the field for, you know, 15, 20 years at that point and knew that I had what it took to open up my own agency. And so in 2015, I, I, uh, me and my partner opened up Loving Hands Family Support Services in the heart of Los Angeles, Southern California. Um, and we wanted to serve black and brown families. And we wanted to offer safe employment for black and brown clinicians because we had just had a horrific kind of experience over the course of our careers. And as we were kind of getting started, I noticed the disparity. I had always known it, but it became much more clear between little black boys and girls being diagnosed and them receiving services. <laughs> so at some point, we had thought about bringing on a licensed clinical psychologist to do the assessments. Um, but when we thought of what it would cost, I was like, I can just invest that in myself. So I accidentally um, went back to get my doctoral degree. Um, and that's how I ended up kind of finishing that in clinical psychology so that I could kind of bridge that gap. But in that journey, 2020 happened and so much was uncovered during that time for so many of us. Mm -hmm. And um, I was able to kind of re-examine my trauma around racial experiences I had had. Um, I had decided to work with survivors um, of domestic assault and violence. So um, trigger warning, I'm about to talk about something horrific. So if you're sensitive to domestic um, violence or sexual assault, do what you need to do to calm yourself or disengage. Hmm. Um, but I decided to go back to the shelter where my mom was a victim of um, because she was um, a survivor of domestic assault. She actually hmm. um, was in jail. I was born in jail and she was in hmm. jail for murdering my dad when she was pregnant with me in self-defense. And so she had a horrific kind of wow. experience. And so I decided to go back to the shelter where um, she received services when we were young um, and support survivors. That opened up a whole door. Simultaneously, I was working on my dissertation, um, which is the effects of Black women um, in America um, with uh, resiliency and trauma. And I was interviewing 10 Black women who had had similar childhood, you know, childhoods like mine. And they were telling their stories to me, right? Like me. And they were so brave about sharing their experiences and it just gave me like, as I'm working with survivors and hearing these stories and my, you know, my own story is, is just filled with shame and guilt. And, you know, I've been in therapy my whole life, but not really ever publicly talking about it. There was no need, but by, you know, seeing kind of the bravery and, and, and realizing kind of the, the, I don't know the word I'm looking for, the, um, I guess, freedom and kind of just being able to share their mm. stories. And so I, I really was examining all the things. And then someone had reached out to me and said that they were putting together an anthology and wanted me to tell my story about what it was like to get pregnant um, as a teenager and, and, and adopt my little brother. Mm. Um, and she was like, it could be about anything you want, just about overcoming. And she was like, can you tell that story? And so I was like, I'm not a writer and I, I don't think I'd be a good fit. And she was like, absolutely. You're writing a dissertation. I, I think you should. 
And so that was the first time as, as I, I had a couple drafts, I was writing it. It just became a cathartic kind of experience. Um, and I told the public, like my story publicly about my mom, um, mm. and me being born in jail and how I was named and what I learned over the years. And when I submitted it, the reception and the feedback I got was overwhelming. Like it was mm. much more than I had like ever imagined and we moved through the publishing process it became like a bestseller simultaneously Sarah Troutman and I had connected and she had asked me to tell my story actually that she didn't ask me we were talking and she was asking me about my career and and Mm. like most people they were like and then what happened and then what happened and no you can't be serious and Mm -hmm. it just was like this you know and she was like you've got to tell this story and I knew that I wanted to vocally because I was in the process of like publishing the book. And so I I did it on a podcast, my first podcast. And that reception was absolutely, I mean, people that I had worked with were coming out of the woodworks, like, just like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I've seen you all of these years just moving through and you mm-hmm. surviving. And I had, I'm getting emotional, forgive me. Um, I had no idea what you were like dealing with. Right. And I even had people come out and like apologize. Like, mm. I remember I treated you like crap and mm. um, lots of people actually. And I had no idea. Now I recognize that, um, that you were acting that way as a matter of survival and, um, you know, and so I've been able to have lots of meaningful conversations with, with past colleagues and, and past supervisors. Um, but yeah, that led into kind of me learning how to talk, mm-hmm. right. And find my voice. And, um, and I think what I found most useful is that other black women hear my story, any part of it, because it's vast. And mm-hmm. what is public is is just a small part, part of it. I haven't even like told the whole thing, but that mm-hmm. little bit, um, people are finding it to be useful um, and they're able to connect with it and kind of understand, um, you know, their journeys through me hearing mine and just that validation that that they're not alone in their Mm. struggles and some of the things that they're facing. And so it's just been a wonderful kind of exploration and support. And it's just kind of been, been able to help me find my, my focus and my vision about what I have to offer in this, Mm. in this world. (sighs) Yeah. Oh, that's, that's quite the story. I'm not going to ask any follow-up questions because you know, as as I told you before, I just want you to share what you want to share, and uh, I don't want to put you on the spot. You can. It, it's I I at this point everything that's out there. I'm I'm an open book, and mm. and I'm exercising this. Yeah. If you have questions, you can. I, well, the the one question I had that I was asking you before when we chatted was, and you mentioned you just you alluded to it a bit here was, how you said how you got named. So, I I mean, I've always noticed your name being spelt lowercase. Um, It's spelt lowercase right here in our Zoom. It's (laughs) lowercase on your social media. It's lowercase on your website. It's lowercase on that fancy signature logo you've got up there on your website that I'm looking at right now. And so I'm sure lots of folks are curious about uh, what's going on there. Yeah. So um, my mom, I mentioned I was born in jail. She... Mm. um, 
was in a horrible altercation with my dad and um, mm. murdered him in self-defense. And um, there was a lot of like chaos surrounding the incident. I have a lot of newspaper clippings that I look at from time to time and can't imagine like what she went through at 19 surviving mm -hmm. that. Um, but she had run away from home when she was 16 and just lived a life of like, chaos and, and destruction she was um struggled with um drug addiction and my dad had a whole family um before my mom he was a lot older when when they met and um and it was just a horrific relationship she loved mm. him tremendously um sure. and it was just a horrific relationship for her and so they had this altercation and she found herself in jail when she was pregnant with me and she was contemplating her life. I was her first child and she didn't have much to give me. And she contemplated what was in future for us. And so she wrote this in a journal um, and I didn't access the journal until, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago. I'm really bad with, with, mm. with timelines. Sure, sure. With me. Um, but I found it and I'll tell you how I, I, I found that. But she wrote in this journal and said, I don't have much to give to my daughter. And so I'm going to give her this name and um, people are going to know her. They're going to see this name and, and they're mm. going to know who she is. Um, and this is the gift I'm, I'm giving to her. And mm. um, my whole life, it's been like that. I can remember learning how to write my name at school mm. and putting a capital D and writing it with an I because that's how the teachers told me my name was spelled. Yeah. So I'd come home and my mom would absolutely not. She'd go up to the school and she'd act a fool and she'd be like, absolutely not. This is her name. And I would get in a lot of trouble and she'd make me like write it over and over and over. This mm. is your name. This mm. is what I named you. Um, and for years I was like, I don't understand. And I didn't. Um, and I didn't understand until I found her journal. I was actually moving out of an apartment that I had lived in with my daughter for years. Mm. And I was actually moving in with my now husband for the first time and was like packing up and finally going through my mom's stuff after she had died. And I found her journal. I still have it stored away. And every once in a while I, I reread something and it's just astonishing like, mm. how my life turned out the way it did. Mm. But I found that. And I remember like my my now husband was on his way over and I called him and I was like, I need you to like come here. And I, like I showed him and I was just sobbing and it just was such a, a revelation, right. That like, she um, didn't have much to give me. She didn't have anything to give me at that time, but she gave me my name and she was intentional about that. And um, even when I read it 10 years ago, I remember thinking like, wow, I, I, I got a degree and I, I got my master's and I, I'm happy with my, with my one daughter and my brother and right. And, and yay, like that's right. But then all the things that have happened, especially in these past three years, the letter I told you about, I mm. won't go into it. Right. But the reason why this letter was found that's so significant to my life now is because my name right was in and, and the guy who found it was like i remember you right i remember your name mm. and, um it's just it's a fascinating kind of um gift that i think she left i don't know that she knew the impact but um mm. it's really it's really been a gift and i absolutely love and adore my name and um i just when i look back i'm really thankful that 
that's what she gave me when she was sitting in that prison cell thinking about the life that I would lead. So my literal brain, just what was her intention behind the lowercase? She it, just wanted people to know that I was important and that I okay. was for Gotcha, yeah, she, gotcha. She wanted to know that when that I was Danielle with a lowercase d and a y and and she wanted nice. people to know who I was and and the thing is is I don't like the spotlight and I don't like yeah like even now I'm still awkward talking and sure I've always just been in my little bubble and my little yeah. um, trench hole and and so it, it's so um I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's still something I, I I'm processing and, mm -hmm. and resolving and I've, you know, known about it for the past, you know, however many years. Um, but it was, again, I, I can't see it any other way. It was a gift mm -hmm. that she, that she gave me. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to make sense of it. Um, but yeah. her intention was that people saw my name and they knew exactly who I was. Mm -hmm. Did you get to spend any time with her sort of after, like, did she get out of jail or? Yeah. So she got out of jail. She got off on self-defense. Yeah. Um, she had a really rough life. We had a really rough childhood. Um, she struggled. I, yeah. me and my little sister. So there's three of us who mm. lived with her. We have three different dads. Um, mm. My little sister is, um, the product of um, a relationship that resulted in rape and, mm. and so that was really traumatizing and mm. my little brother's dad abused us and as a result we ended up in foster care and Ugh. um in and out our whole lives and then I met a friend and his mom met me and was like I think you're great and I was 16 and the first question she asked me was, what are you doing? Where are you going to school? And I was like, I'm not going to school. I'm taking care of my mom and my siblings. And she was like, no, you're not. Hmm. Um, and up until that point, it was a really rocky, rough childhood. It was a really hmm. rough existence. Um, and then everything changed when this woman came in my life and was like, we're filling out college applications. Like you were hmm. not, you were not staying here. You're well. doing something. Um, and my mom and I had a rough relationship until the day she died. Um, mm. And I've had to do a lot of grieving and mourning and I've had yeah. to grieve her and her death. Um, we didn't have conversations that I felt like we needed to have. Mm. Um, but because of the relationship I had with Gloria, um, I, this is the woman, my mom, my mom, okay. yeah. um, I never called her mom. She was always Gloria to me. So even now when I say my mom, it's, it's weird. I uh, yeah, yeah. called her Gloria. Um, but, um, as a result of the relationship with her, um, I've had to find a way to be an exceptional mother to my girls. Um, and I don't know anything really about being a parent. I just mm. knew that I needed to love them fiercely and intentionally um, and give them a framework that I never had. Um, and as a result, I think I have a really beautiful relationship with each of them. Um, different, they're 18 years apart. Mm. Um, but that's kind of been my goal in life is just to be a good mom so mm -hmm. everything when we talk about aba or the science or what i've done everything and i like this is no exaggeration has been 
for Alexia Monet and Skylar Rose. Like mm. everything I do is 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 literally for them. And and that's who I'm seeing on your website. Mm -hmm. mm, nice. I'm really proud of them. I'm yeah. really, really. I I always say that the 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 best and biggest accomplishment I've I've ever done in my life is is being able to birth those girls and be their mother and just mm. cultivate really meaningful relationships with each of them. Truly. I want to get back to this uh, and kind of where it's taken you, but I have a, 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 a not as far back in time question, but just about something I saw in your bio, because you kind of jumped in right into, uh, you know, uh, the important work you did in your doctorate. But I noticed you have a master's degree in, in, in deaf studies and hard of yes. hearing. That's, that's seems unrelated to anything. Well, that no, you've said it's so not. far. It's not. No. <laughs> so everything is tied together. So um in undergrad, I I think I told you I, I majored in communicative disorders, yeah. which is incorporates um deaf and hard of hearing studies. Mm. And when I came to Long Beach, I had a friend who was like, Hey, take a take a signing class with me. Mm. And I did. And I absolutely loved it from like day one mm. so what you don't know about me is that um I always say this that my first language wasn't words like mm. like as we know them my first language was feeling so mm. I am deeply sensitive I am highly empathic mm. um I think that's a result of the childhood I had I had to kind of just I was the oldest child and I had to kind of protect my siblings and protect my mom and all of these things. And so I developed a really keen sense of knowing how to human, right. Mm. Knowing how to like, just be in spaces with other humans. Mm. Um, but I couldn't always articulate my thoughts. I still to this day struggle with like getting words out. Right. So when I talk about exercising my voice, it's a literal kind of work that I have to do. Like me talking and being here on this podcast is work. I have to like, mm. Um, work really hard and so I think in pictures like and I think in concepts so before I can like even find the words to describe something mm. I get an image and I often describe that image and then people like better understand what I'm trying to convey and so when I took the sign language class it are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. Whomhouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Whomhouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match. Kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. The second secret word is community. It was like, oh my gosh, like this is my language because ASL is a conceptual language. All right, so I'll show you like, if we're talking about butterfly, um, the technical kind of way to sign butterfly 
is butter fly right mm. but when deaf people see that they see a stick of butter flying right and so asl mm. kind of trans transmits this literal language to conceptual right so the image the sign for butterfly is this right it looks like a butterfly mm. not a pat of butter flying away right so that's how I think. That's exactly how I think, right? I have these images. And so ASL kind of was this gift that I had to like convey my thoughts and pictures, right? And, and I didn't have to work so hard to like produce vocally. And so I was assigned like that led me into signing at church. And then I signed, um, uh, I was an independent contractor because I've always hustled my entire career. I but in a fort just to have one job, I, I had to kind of like just survive for my children, mm. for my babies. And so I was a sign language interpreter for 15 years. And wow. that did itself to me being able to communicate more effectively with the children that I was serving. I sure. often um, ASL programs. I was often like if we were introducing signs to a child's program, I was like, are we considering this not just signs? Um, and gestures, but are we turning this into a full language? And early in my career, we were teaching full, because ASL is a complete language, just like yes. English or Tagalog, right? Or, or, right, any other, it's a full and complete language. And it has syntax and it has grammar and it has pronunciation and enunciation. So I was often teaching that in the programs with my children. So it just, when mm. I talk about my skill set, right, and, and being able to like be promoted into these spaces, it's always because I had something to offer, right, that was useful. And that's kind of how I survived an ABA over my career is like, I was never interested in growing up to the next level. I was always interested in growing out. So like, what is going to make me hireable? What is going to make me employable? And so sign language is one of those things that I just accumulated that was like, hey, you probably need this and, mm. and made me useful. Cool. Right on. Yeah, I know my wife uh, was an interpreter for a little bit, too. And, ah. and so, yeah, definitely. And I definitely saw for her because she did she kind of moved out of the field somewhat, but for she was kind of working frontline and group homes like I was and and uh yeah it made such a huge difference for her for that work and and of course the rare she had the rare deaf client that we had um yeah. uh, that for years was there before she came yeah and no one and you know no, no one could no one the, the, the no one understood the relation that the, the, they thought the parent was you know really problematic Right. Um, but it was because no one could communicate with the parent. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I was often assigned to right kiddos that were deaf or parents who were deaf and was able to offer those um interpreting services um and yeah just really and we don't when we think of communicative communicative disorders just like mm. you said at the beginning of this conversation we don't think that there's a connection but yeah. actually me having that understanding like it wasn't just it was receptive language. It was expressive language, right? Mm -hmm. It was all the ways that we can vocally communicate and visually communicate and verbally communicate, right? And really knowing yeah. the differences between all of those. And I think it's right. And another thing I want to mention as that is that mm. I've never seen ABA as being like the only path to healing, right? Or to this therapy or like I've yes. always 
really comprehensive approach, right? So developmentally, what are we looking at? Like, linguistically, what are we looking at, right? Mentally, what are we looking at? And I think that's what made me different too, is like, it wasn't just that ABA was the only thing. It was Mm -hmm. like, what other systems are we using to support this family? Oftentimes, it's mental health, right? Which is... um, what's the mentalistic, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It was always dismissed. I'm like, no, like it's such a critical thing that we should be considering that I was always punished for mm-hmm. over my career. And so yeah. I think, you know, communicative disorders is just another example of how we can use some of these outside fields to support the work that we're doing with ABA. Yeah. And mentalism is a trigger word. <laughs> you know I, I get it i get it that you know we can't observe some of those things using behavior analysis and that's fine but it speaks to your point that you know we need to stop just using behavior analysis <laughs> and so yeah, we can talk cool. about all the mentalistic stuff with the other things yeah. because that's important and it's so uh, important and it's also devaluing of people to tell them no yes. sorry sorry that's uh that's not a thing no yeah no no it dismisses it dismisses their lived experiences exactly yeah yeah and i think when we're talking about aba we're hyper focused on treating the symptoms of autism right and i'm yep. like no 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 like how are we really, and I say healing, but not that I think that we should heal autism, but healing, I think the impact that this field has had on the mm-hmm. families, right? Like mm-hmm. if we're hyper-focusing on this child and their symptoms, then we're disregarding how families are like struggling. Yes. So I remember when I was conceptualizing Loving Hands, one of my first goals was safe employment for Black and brown clinicians that was number one number two was creating safe spaces for our families because i remember like wanting to start a whole thing about supporting newly diagnosed parents because it's such an intense time for them right and here we come in with like these science and these structures and your kid's gonna cry and we're just gonna have to right and i was always like no 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 like we have to like not just look at this one, you know, the, the child, we have to look at the macro system. Yes. We have to look at the neighbors and the neighborhood yep. and the school and right. And the cousin, like it, it was just always this bigger approach. And I thank my early kind of career for offering me that perspective and seeing how that mm-hmm. dynamic plays a role and the child being okay, not just now, but long-term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. The thing about, you know, those parents, particularly those moms early on, you know, often these kids are getting diagnosed, you know, well, hopefully with your help earlier and earlier. Uh, but, you know, if they're getting diagnosed at two, I mean, it hasn't been that long since they had this child. I just, I'm, I'm having, um, uh, I was having a chat with someone who's coming on the podcast, uh, Trisha Holmes. I don't know if you know that name, but she's a, autistic bcba and she's a doula uh and and i didn't know she was a doula she's a doula and we were talking a couple days ago and uh and you know i'll I'll let her you know tell it the way she meant to but basically you know and, and you'll relate to this certainly much more than i will you know 
as a guy and a guy with no kids um 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 there are so many things that i think folks have no idea about motherhood um uh in the early bits like people know about well people know a bit about sort of you know motherhood through the lifespan of the child a little bit um but there's a lot of things that happen you know you know from the moment of conception all the way to birth and and after you know you know i don't i know very little about sort of things like postpartum depression what that all means and the anxiety but also all of the experiences that a mother goes through and and, and Trichet talks about how there's all these experiences from sort of conception to birth that a mother goes through that are often dictated to them by the doctor, um, you know, or, or, you know, some professional or whatever. Um, and then there's actually lots of opportunity for choice through that process. And there's things you can choose. It's not all just one way or the highway. Um, and I don't even know the one way, let alone the choices, but um, and I'm, 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 she'll get into all that when we, when we have the interview, I'm sure. But, um, but the idea that, you know, the mother has gone through all of this stuff, um, and even, and, and this is just if it happens to be a healthy pregnancy, you know, there's all the other things that go with that. Um, um, and then, you know, just two years in still reeling from all this, not dealing with any of the, all those components, you know, and now they're getting the diagnosis. And now you, the professional, are coming in and go, do this, do that, do this, do that. And not considering any of this stuff is like, there's just so much we we need to learn about as behavior analysts that isn't behavior analysis. Like, it should almost be a requirement that, you know, 25 of the 35 CEUs we get we get every year not be in behavior analysis. Right. You know? know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should always be looking, like I've said this again, before I had words and I could articulate like some of the phenomenon that, you know, we're talking about today in 2023, but that like psychology, right? Like is just, is a field that we should be leaning deeply into, right? Like um, critical conversations, right? Like the art of communication. Like Mm -hmm. I, I wish that there were like, these mandates around like really understanding compassion and empathy. Right. And um, I think about emotional intelligence, right. Something that I'm, I'm just now starting to kind of explore, mm-hmm. you know, as, as I, as I consider the experiences I've had, right. Like why, why are we only highlighting like intellectual intelligence, right. Why aren't we looking at kind of the emotional capacity, right. When I think about my limitations, um, they fall under um, limitations, you know, an intellectual kind of understanding, right? And and that's never been important to me. Like I always struggled with ABA with the terminology and this analytical kind yeah. of, right? Because I I just I get people and I can sit in a space where I can just be human and allow them to be human and kind of offer supports that they're not getting. Right. And I think that is dismissed a lot. And so I think we definitely need to be looking at other fields. Mm. Sociology, I think is important, right? Like, especially like when I think about, and I'm about to get on a tangent because it, it like, it just pisses me off, but like 
when I'm talking specifically about the black community, we're so communal, right? And so I remember like this mandate from the board that says like, we cannot take gifts. And I'm like, I'm working and like diverse communities. And I would be working like with like my Asian families, right? And every single time I would leave their house, they would frantically run to their pantry and pull out like a packaged something and a yep. coat and like, like put it in my hands. Right. And I don't eat any of that. I don't drink Coke. Right. But like, I knew better. I didn't have words and, mm -hmm. but I knew better. And I just graciously said, thank you. Right. And I remember like my supervisor, like writing me up because I'm not a lot. And I'm like, like, there's so much that's missing from like this understanding kind of, no, I'm not like, if I have to stay five minutes, like to help a parent calm down after their child just had, right. Like a really intense behavior, like mm -hmm. I'm okay doing that. Right. And, yeah. and kind of, and, and yes, I understand boundaries and I'm really good at like setting yeah. and establishing boundaries, but I'm also okay with like those gray areas. Right. And I understand that we need rules and people don't have this skill set that I have. And some of these rules are made for them. But I think so much is missing, Ben, from like, mm -hmm. and I can go on and on. And, and I don't even know in this moment that I can articulate it in a way that's going to make sense. But like just this, how we function as a society, um, especially with the historically, you know, marginalized groups, like we are communal and it's, it's sharing these resources and kind of being there for each other in these ways. And, and I think that, that, that we're missing the mark. I, I'm going to stop because I'm, I'm. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, I mean, everything we're doing, you know, our field, our ethics code, everything. I mean, there, there's lots of good things about it. There's lots of useful things about it. I'm not dismissing it all, but it's all very, you know, it's all a product of colonization. Yes. Right? Yes. You know, and so, yes. you know, that doesn't mean that we have to throw it all out and start over again. Um, although sometimes I think maybe that might not be a terrible idea. Um, uh, I was actually chatting with some folks um, a couple of days ago about that. What if, what if we started the field over again from the beginning? What would that be like? Um, you know, thinking about, I had Tiffany Hammond on a while back and she was talking about, she was, at the time, she was kind of in the center of a lot of this anti-ABA conversation um, as being, she's an autistic advocate. She's an autistic, black autistic mom with autistic kids herself. She just put out this fantastic book, by the way, um, that uh, I'll, I'll throw in the show notes that she's just, she's she's now like all over the media now. She's been on like CNN and ABC and Today Show and everything for this amazing book about, um, about you know, so I, I'm going to butcher it because I won't do it, but it's basically about... Um, uh, you know, a young, a young black autistic child and, and sort of that whole experience. And uh, it's just, it's, it's blowing minds. But anyway, um, she uh, was talking about how, you know, it's, uh, you know, ABA is just a leaf in the tree, uh, you know, and it's, it's the roots that we got to be thinking about. Um, and uh, the, the roots are, you know, all the isms that yes. we can think of, you know, yeah. that are, that, that all of our systems, not just ABA, every system is based on, uh, but, our field is, I think, really behind in a lot of this. You know, we're, we'll, we'll talk about Baba in a bit. 
Um, you know, you're a board member, I know, and, uh, you know, and all the good work Baba's doing, but Baba's only been around for just a few years. And I was, um, I've been trying to, you know, we're talking about other fields. I've been trying to get folks from other fields on. Um, I've had some school psychologists on, I got some social workers coming on. And I was kind of looking into sort of, you know, the 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 black um, sort of associations for all these folks. I looked at like the Black Association for Social Work. 1978, it started, you know, and, and the school psych, psych one goes back quite a ways. And there's a psychiatrist one and a psychologist one, all of them going back to like the 60s and 70s um, and 80s. And I'm like, and, 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 and we just started doing this a few years ago. Um, and I'm not slamming you know the 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 the, you know the amazing you know black folks that put put the association together i know about cat jackson and on about you know the facebook group and all that stuff and um but that you know we're we're just we're just we're just scratching the surface in terms of sort of the the you know the 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 colonized you know the racist racist kind of structures that a lot of our stuff is built on. And so, you know, when you talk about the gifts, you know, I mean, I, I remember there's a, I was working with a, a Persian family years ago and, uh, you know, I'm vegan and I wasn't then, and I don't think I could do, I, I don't think I could be a clinician and be vegan uh, because it, there's a lot of foods that get offered to you that you kind of, yeah. you have to eat. Yeah. And I would have had, to, I, I would have to be so rude to people now all the time. Um, but I, I, I remember just, I, I had to eat so much Persian food uh, every time I went to visit this family to talk about a program, uh, like because they had their they had the grandmother from Iran was living there. She didn't speak a wink of English, um, but she was living there for months, and uh, all she did was cook and cook and cook nonstop yeah. every day. And it was a Persian feast every day. You'd walk into that home, and we were working on behaviors related to, you know, eating and whatnot, uh, tea drinking and that sort of thing, and so. Um, I, you know, they would have, they would have kicked me out the door if I didn't eat yeah. that food, you know, yeah. um, and, and my, my service would not have been effective at all. I don't know how effective it was in a way, but, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things we come at with our kind of, with, with this kind of privileged perspective that a lot of our, you know, sort of big associations are run by um and and dictating and and i think you know folks really need to do some 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 self-reflection and introspection if we're gonna you know make any headway yeah yeah and mm. you know i want to say this because i i tend to kind of get worked up about all the negatives you yeah. know ABA, i think um you know a few years ago when i remember hearing you know i have the privilege of seeing the babies that i served right yeah like, grownups and they get to offer their feedback. Um, this is a funny story. I went to a birthday party a couple of weeks ago um, and I'm at this birthday party and coincidentally, I see like a family who I had served in Long Beach and now mm. I'm in a completely different city, like hours away. And I'm at this birthday party and I see a family that I served and their baby was a one and a half when he came into, I ran an early intervention program and coincidentally they were there, mm. uh, a black family. And she was just overjoyed, right. About like running into me. And it was just such a nice experience, but her son is now 16, I think. And, it, you know, and 
to, to hear what he has to like offer and, and memories that he has right of his time and, and really being thankful. So this idea that ABA is bad, right? I don't subscribe to that because mm. I, I don't discount that. I, I get feedback, right? None of us are above feedback or mm-hmm. knowing how to function differently. I do know that I was very intentional about some of the things that I would do and some of the things I wouldn't do, right? Like I got written up a lot and I was called insubordinate a lot because I just refused to do some, what I thought was really harmful practices. Mm-hmm. Like, like I remember the informational no, right? Like when I think about delivering that across mm-hmm. a 40 hour week program, right? How many times a child like would hear no, even with that like inflection, right? Cause I was taught like, you don't just say no, you say no, nope, right? To like soften the impact. Um, I think about how harmful that that can be, but yeah. I also think how useful it is when it's done right, right? And, and as a clinician, I've always prided myself on generalization and maintenance, right? And again, I, 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 I share this again, that we really had an organic approach. And so I, I want to make it clear that I'm not bashing ABA mm-hmm. or what it did for my life personally, right? How it provided the structure and a routine and I use it to this day outside of working with children with autism. Um, But I think that the field can benefit from really like taking feedback, right? I think the minute I see that anyone is defensive, right? Then I'm like, that's a problem, right? Like if we're not like able to kind of get, take feedback and learn from that, um, because this idea that I'm perfect and that I've done everything the way I'm supposed to, like, then that makes me a part of the problem, right? And so I think that's kind of my suggestion for the field is like, you don't have to be so defensive. Like if you mm-hmm. just stopped and listened, um, yeah. we could probably get a little bit further, right? If you kind of let mm-hmm. go of the script that you have that you've not done anything wrong, then we could probably get a little bit further. Yeah. I mean, ABA, yeah. Enough time. ABA can be good. It can be good. I mean, you know, and and I've heard some folks talk about it's not really a question of good or bad or what even what it holds even the right words to use. I mean, ABA is a science, and that's also part of the defensive argument a lot of people use. What's a science? It's not good or bad. So stop. But ABA has is powerful. I think that's what's that's the word that's important here. It's powerful. And depending on the person and depending on the intentions of the person and depending on the skills of the person, it can be used to do really great things, but it can also be used to do really horrible things. Um, And. And that's. That's not taught either. Mm-hmm. you know um and and how to sort of deal with the power that you've been given yeah. you know to, and to to wield that power you know for good you know it's not enough to learn the task list you know uh the task list just teach you how to wield it it doesn't tell you teach you what direction to wield it or how to wield it you know there's an yeah. ethics goal but you know it's it's very easy if i'm in a mood today for me to you know, wield my power for bad. Um, and, um, and, and our field, because it's lacking, you know, a lot of that work and things like compassion and, 
you know, and trauma and, um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, listening to, you know, and culture, you know, and all those things, like all the areas we, we, we don't learn about that are, you know, we're, we're starting to scratch the surface. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I've, I, I've said this like a broken record. I, I think we're using the, the labels a lot now, like, you know, every agency, you know, in 2019 that had a website, in 2020, the website suddenly said they were trauma-informed, neurodiversity-affirming, yes. and allies yes. to all yes. cultures. Yes. Um, um, and now that's on every website. Now every single autism provider is neurodiverse-affirming and 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 you know and and, and trauma-informed, um, <laughs> which 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 I doubt. Um, right. You know, um, and uh, and and so you know we've definitely learned that those things are are valued by our consumers. But we we have not learned, you know, what what it means to provide services in that way, and what and we have not learned how easily we can, you know, shift that power to cause trauma. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I a part of what I do now is I I we're a non public agency, Loving Hands, and so we provide contracts for school districts across Southern California and. Mm. Uh, uh, oftentimes the, the populations are, are black and brown um, yeah. children. And so I supervise school psychs who want to become BCBAs. And I really cool. love working with school psychs because yeah. it's just a comprehensive right approach to kind of maintaining school behaviors. And awesome. so I was working with one of my supervisees and they had never done an FBA and so a school psych at a site was kind of just here, do this FBA with no formal training. And mm-hmm. I'm a stickler for FBAs. Like I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of really passionate about this document because this guides the support that our babies are going to get. Yeah. And so she's, you know, I'm reading what she's writing and it's like, and you know, this child is defiant and this child you know, refuses to, right. And she's going on and on in this language and I'm getting this picture. Right. And then at some point I ask a question like, um, or it said the principal came in. So for context, the principal, um, doctoral level person puts this seven-year-old in a CPI hold, um, Mm. for seven minutes. Um, and I'm furious, right? Like, because I have a complete hands-off approach. I was the director of a non-public school where we had pretty significant behaviors and we were able to literally like be in crisis situations where we never had to put our hands on like a 400 pound student, right? First of all, I don't have the physical capacity, but second of all, like these students have been hand, like physically handled their whole lives. Yeah. So as soon as they become upset, they're ready to kind of engage. And so we're like kind of reteaching, right? Like, no, you're safe and we can Mm. evade and we can do this all day long as long, right? So I really focus on safety escalation. So I'm furious. Mm. And in the notes it said, or in the FBA, it said, um, the teacher or the principal said, give me, give me the tape dispenser. And then the student, and this is like in quotes, and the student said, no, it's not yours. And so then I asked the school psych, well, was it the students? And she was like, yeah, but, and I was like, so then why is the principal like taking this tape dispenser from him? Mm -hmm. Like he brought it from home. 
this is a traumatized child. Like we, we spent like an hour talking about that. Why is this grown man like fighting with a seven-year-old about a tape dispenser that like he's just, right? Like if he doesn't want to do work, like, right? And I, I want to make it clear, like I'm not about like just letting students like, but if we're in a crisis situation, like yep. let's not add to that, like, right, by engaging in this power struggle. Yeah. And so this idea that like, I'm constantly like teaching, I have to teach like these simple concepts, even in the way that you're wording this document, right? This child isn't defensive. This child is protective about items that belong to him that yeah. offer safety, right? And just like, and, and the school psychologist, I, I'm not kidding immediately when I asked her like, well, was it his? And she was like, yeah, immediately had taken on, I think, the attitudes of the administration, right? Yep. And, yep. and and the hustle and 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 thought like, oh my gosh, right? And just started crying, right? And was like, thank you for that perspective. I've never considered that because I'm taking on the energy of an entire school personnel who's frustrated mm. with a seven-year-old, right? Mm. And and so we're reworking this FBA, but, you know, like teach, not just teaching them the structure of an FBA, but teaching them really like, what are we talking about here? Right. Like goes back to my original point of like, this is a four-year-old, this is a seven-year-old, yeah. right? Like, what are we talking about and how are we providing a supportive environment, you know, for these students? Right. And mm. so I, I just, I wanted to kind of make that point that even in, in our language, we have to be careful about how we're conveying kind of because this and I, I had to tell you this document isn't like just for this moment like this document is going to support his success over the next few years of his life right yeah. and so it's a whole thing right and this is what I'm doing on a daily basis is just like I you know like it's one thing to teach the structure of ABA but with that power that you're talking about we also have to teach like whoa, like when I read this, this is what it says. Is that what she wants? She's like, no, that's not what I want. Right. Yeah. So then how do we kind of honor like this life, the seven-year-old and how do mm -hmm. we protect, right? This little child who doesn't have anyone else except these adults who are charged with writing this document that's supposed to support them. So I can go on and on, but it's such an important like point that you bring up and kind of that power that we have. And a mm -hmm. lot of what I'm teaching out in these streets is kind of like it's not just about the science it's really about so many other things yeah mm. okay i want to shift gears again yes um to uh no I, I i like all these topics and but and, and i appreciate that you've been listening to the podcast but i feel like folks at the four hour mark will start that will start turning things off <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. I, I will say my interview with Natalia Byrez, the first mm -hmm. one I did. Um, love her. Um, love, love Dr. Byrez. Was, has, has consistently been like the top five most downloaded episode and it's the longest episode in over mm -hmm. three hours. Um, and so that, that's amazing that there's people that just, um, you know, have the attention span to listen to a podcast for three hours. I'm not one of them, um, uh, but, but, but I'll do one anyway. I digress. So um, I want to just go back to a bit about your company and the work you're doing. Um, you talked uh, and kind of 
the, the two kind of goals of your company. First, I just want to talk about the people that uh, work for you. So you're trying to you know, provide safe, you know, employment for black and brown clinicians. What's that look like? Like, do you, do you have a lot of staff or? So no, not right now because um, I'm transitioning a lot of things. And so yeah. um, not in this moment, but I'm, I'm kind of figuring out what I want to do. So I'm finding that I'm not as passionate about some of the clinical work, the mm. right, like I've just been doing this for 25 years and and my efforts are kind of shifting into other okay. other areas. And so not at this moment, but what safe employment looks like yeah. is um, um, the last BCBA I hired um, was covered head to toe in tattoos and mm. literally covered head to toe um, and didn't. Um, articulate in the way that people think BCBA should articulate and didn't have some of these skill sets. And I always say, I don't care about what your clinical skills look like. I can teach that, right? Yeah. Like that can be taught. What I'm looking for are like, for instance, like in the areas I serve, I want our families to kind of see themselves, right? I don't want this polished, like made up version of like, yep. Right. And so that's really important to me. And so she had had a really hard time kind of being heard and being validated and being accepted. Mm -hmm. um, and the first few months that we worked together, I mean, she would be covered and head to toe, right? Like just because of her tattoos. And again, like her mm -hmm. own traumatic experiences, I don't care about that. And, um, and she was so anxious about how the school district was going to, you know, see her and not necessarily yeah. the families because we're like in the heart of LA, um, but how people would take her seriously. And I'm yeah. like, I'm standing in the gap for you, right? We're not questioning like your skill set based on what you look like, or, mm -hmm. right? But this is what I'm looking for, right? And so just creating spaces where we're normalizing, like one of the school psychs I work awesome. with now um, is covered and, 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 you know, and, and, tattoos and she's constantly and I'm like if you need to roll up your sleeves if it's you know 100 degrees outside and you need to roll up your sleeves we're going to like get through this right so I'm I'm I've always been vocal and I've always been kind of um direct with my communication and so um I have a really good reputation um and people love my work and so I can use whatever privilege I've earned over 25 years to stand in the gap for people who don't have those same privileges um and just create different opportunities to explore kind mm. of or challenge or interrogate what you think is okay yeah right so like let's talk about this let's interrogate it and let's see if that really matters because at the end of mm. the day I don't think that does um, let's look at these kind of things and let's consider those, right? Mm. So that's what safe employment looks like with loving. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and, and, that's one example, I should say. Right. Well, and and uh, it's interesting you bring the tattoo example up a couple of times. And again, I'm looking at your webpage and your main photo is you showing off one of your tattoos. Well, not intentionally. That's like, <laughs> I'm not tatted from head to toe, but no. that tattoo has gotten me in a lot of trouble and it's so silly. Like I used to have to put a band-aid over it. Like it's right. so ridiculous, Ben. Like, Well, it's, it's it also so seems ridiculous. like a strange coincidence that um, not 20 minutes ago, you were 
teaching us the butterfly sign. <laughs> and that's oh, the tattoo yeah. we're looking at. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, butterflies. That's yeah. awesome. Okay, so that that's kind of what's that's great, and, and I think that's. I think there's a lot of folks that are starting to do more of that work around, around you know, or, or maybe not doing that work, but calling for that work around creating safe spaces for black and brown folks, especially, you know, I had um, Dr. Celeste Malone on mm-hmm. and a lot of her research is around, uh, you know, creating safe spaces for black school psychologists, both in the schools, but also in, in the, in the education programs that they're in. Yeah. Um, and I've got a few folks coming on that, that are, that are, that are kind of doing a lot of that work around, you know, I mean, we talk, I, mean, I think people are starting, starting to understand, or I'm starting to understand anyway, uh, you know, the, the, the historical reasons why we don't see as many black folks in roles in professional roles of any kind, um, you know, and, and it's, you know, and we, I'm here, I hear a lot from guests about being sort of the first generation in their family to even have got an undergrad degree, let alone a master's or a doctorate. Um, and, um, and kind of the reasons for that and, and, and how even when, you know, folks are able to, you know, achieve, achieve those, you know, those great things, they get into a workplace where, you know, there's, they were hired likely in part because of the color of their skin, Mm -hmm. um, uh, not because of, you know, their skills or whatever to check a box. Exactly. Um, and, and then we're now expected to a, you know, be the DEI person in their, in their work site, B take all of the children that look like them, um, C, you know, create their own systems to support themselves, um, yeah. you know, and, and, and there's just, you know, there's, I think this is something, I mean, I think certainly more so from what I've seen, you know, black company owners and, 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 you know, and black principals and different things like that are, 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 are trying to do that work. Uh, mm-hmm. But When only when only four percent are represented in your field, and this mm-hmm. it's the same number at schools like eh? so, um, uh, it's almost the exact same number as 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 BCBAs with school psychs. It's also, the, the almost the exact same number as clinical psychologists. Which oh well, there you go. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. and uh, uh, which also then means it's probably even less of a percentage of folks that are in leadership roles. Yes, and so if we're relying on just black clinicians and leadership roles to create safe spaces Mm -hmm. that's not too many safe spaces yeah Yeah. Yeah. and so i think there's a big there's a big amount of work for you know folks like me you know to be creating these safe spaces um and yeah no question there but yeah 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 go ahead I was just going to say this one thing when I first started activating and exercising this muscle, I was talking to a lot of black people and it dawned on me very quickly that black people know what I'm talking about. Right. But that's not my target audience. One of the reasons why I, you know, reached out to Sarah Troutman earlier, you know, during the pandemic was because I was like, I want to create spaces where like, 
we're talking to people who need to be supportive in doing this work. And I want to make this clear. I don't necessarily think that any community needs, I'm just going to say this and, and forgive me for not like polishing it up. That's yeah. not my forte, but white people to kind of do that work. But black people are aware, right? And, and yeah. we're not, like, we don't have the privilege of being disengaged from like the reality of, of, of what's happening in the world, right? Like, yeah. I, I don't ever have the, 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 the privilege of not fully being aware of my surroundings, mm -hmm. or not fully mm -hmm. being aware of kind of the microaggressions that are happening, right? Especially the way that I present and because I am so direct and right. And so I just, I don't have that privilege. And so I don't need to be talking about this work to my community, right? Yeah. My community is this work. Like, like we got accepted, Baba got, um, you know, presented with the DEI award from ABAI a couple of years ago. Mm. And I remember feeling some sort of way. And I, I put this in, in my talk is like, thank you for this award. But like, we are the work, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like we are the work and, yeah. and, and thank you. Like, I, I don't want to discount that, but like, I want to talk to like you, like I want to talk to mm -hmm. you, the employer, right? And even my work, the the effects of trauma and resiliency in Black American women is literally about like, I can create a safe space because of my lived experiences, but how are you creating a safe space for people like me yeah. and people like my BCBA and people like Trisha Holmes, right? And people like right? Like, how are you doing that work, mm -hmm. right? And not that I'm, I'm a finger pointer, because I'm not, but mm -hmm. just like asking, right? And in, in, in that talk that I give specifically, like, I'm asking people to interrogate, like, that defensiveness, yeah, that, you know, kind of protective about all the things that, right? Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about kind of letting go some of these harmful thoughts and ideas that you have, and creating a space where we can sit together and uncomfortable, right? Like, because we hmm. do have to work together. I do have to interact with you, right? And so I, I just, I think that's such an important point is that like, I, I don't think that I'm just talking to one person that like hmm. everyone has to kind of listen to what we're saying because it matters, right? These are lived experiences and it does impact the way that I show up because I'm marginalized. I'm 4% mm -hmm. of the BCBAs. I'm 4% of the clinical psychologists, right? And I know how to like bust down doors and flip tables, but the little black girl behind me, right, doesn't. And so I'm going to use my privilege and my voice yep. to kind of create a pathway for her to come forward and move into a leadership role or whatever. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting Black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives Black and Brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for Black and Brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. ZigZag is an autism therapy management platform. At its core, ZigZag seamlessly allows management of programs, adding, editing, changing long-term and short-term objectives on the go. ZigZag makes data collection super easy for therapists on-site 
and automatically calculates progress, providing you with session summaries and graphs in real time. ZigZag provides you the ability to manage all of your clients, whether they be center or home-based, and work with all the various therapists and parents seamlessly. ZigZag is based in Vancouver, British Columbia, and is fully compliant with both federal and provincial privacy requirements. Book a demo now at www.zigzagkid.com forward slash product demo and get a free 30-day trial. The third secret word is gratitude. The other thing I just wanted to ask about was um, two things I want to ask about before we kind of wrap up. Mm-hmm. One is just is, is back to your work. So we talked about safe space for black clinicians. That's sort of one yeah. goal. But what 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 like doesn't sound like your company is like an ABA company. Like it sounds like like in the sort of autism sense of the word. Um, uh, although you know, I mean, now that you're providing. You're, you are providing diagnoses now. You're doing diagnostic assessments. So or? not by myself, um, because I'm I, I'm waiting to get licensed, which right. is a whole other like right, like the right. like the boards for for okay. ABA. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's that's my hope. And so I don't know which website you're looking at. I have Loving Hands. Um, website. I think that's where I am. Yeah. So that's my ABA, and yeah, that is so. But it's it's in the school districts. I do in home. I do mostly FBAs. Um, everything kind of runs through that company. Mm. And then I also do like public speaking and mm. like business consulting and stuff. I haven't developed that LLC, but um, yeah, Loving Hands is is focused on ABA, but it's not just ABA, right? It's like this holistic kind of approach. And when I become licensed, mm. I will have a mental health department. I will have a psychological testing department. That's mm. kind of how I'm hoping to grow the company. Okay, I, I'm not on that website. <laughs> so loving hands. So I'm, loving I'm hands. on the I'm on your website with yeah, your name. Yeah, so that's yeah, so that's kind of yeah. When I came out with the book, um, mm. my husband, who's um, an entrepreneur, was like, "You need a website," and so mm. um, gotcha. Yeah, so that's but and loving hands, family support services. Is that's the, that's that's the main gig right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's uh, I don't think we've talked about the book. What what book? Tell us about the book. Yeah. So I mentioned it earlier in the episode. So Phenomenal Woman. um, Mm. If you go to, you're on that website. If you go to, I think, um, I don't know what it's called. Media. Yes. Um, So that's the book where I told my story for the first time. Uh. Um, And it's an anthology. So it's a collection of stories from other um woman and um that's the and, one that became and are these the women from your doctorate Mm-mm. no okay. no no so those are just women who were collected my godmother is actually in in the book too mm. um and she tells her story but it's a collection of stories of how women have overcome um difficulties in their life and um like i said it became a bestseller and it just was such an unexpected kind of surprise like I had no idea that 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 it would turn out the way it did and it's just been a beautiful journey that's awesome you mentioned you're shifting gears and doing some other things what's what's on the horizon for Dr. Beal yeah so a part of what I do for loving hands specifically I talked about um 
right? Offering safe employment. I do a lot of community work where I teach entities about safety escalation. Mm. So police departments, regional cool. centers, a lot of these children that we are serving as babies grow up because of the impact that treatment has had on them um, to become into black and brown grown men and women who develop mental health challenges. Yeah. And so oftentimes we have to kind of coordinate care with their psychiatrists, with their psychologist. And so I serve as a consultant to teach safety escalation, right? So how are we kind of caring for these sensitive members of the community mm. so that they're not getting shot by LAPD, right? Mm. Um, it's just, it's, 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 a, it's a big issue. And so I, I consult with a couple of regional centers and, and do that. I also mentioned that I'm an adjunct professor and I teach um, ABA and psychology courses um, I, right now I'm teaching school psychs, um, ABA coursework so that they can obtain their BCBAs. Where's that? Um, Azusa Pacific University mm. out cool. here in, in, um, in Azusa, California. Cool. And, um, what's on the horizon is I'm really getting into public speaking and mm. just talking about my story and kind of, that has been kind of an avenue where, it's not motivational speaking because I, I don't, I, I don't think it's motivational, but just kind of um, taking women from trauma to triumph, right. And just mm. supporting them. So I do a lot of mentoring young, young black girls specifically awesome. um, coaching, supporting them. I work for an LGBTQI2 plus center um, where I'm offering mental health, uh, mental health services. Oftentimes um, my the, the patients on my caseload um, have neurodivergent um, diagnosis that they don't know about. And so this lends itself well. I don't know if you know this. There's um, a connection between the LGBTQIA2 community and the autistic community. So kind of there's cold, there's like this, this diagnosis of autism specifically within that community. Which yes. Um, and so a lot of the work I do is like teaching theory of mind and teaching perspective taking and teaching kind of social skills to grownups who don't necessarily know that they're autistic, right. um, which is a whole other like thing we can go down. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to sit for licensure hopefully this year, um, and start providing my own diagnosis for my own clients and. Wow. Um, I'm writing my autobiography because what I put in the Shenomenal Woman book was just a small portion of my story. And mm. I have found that um, the more I share, the more that I'm empowering other other women specifically. And yeah, that's kind of I'm 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 working on manuscripts and kind of um, making my dissertation um, a little bit more. I, I want to put this in hands of like educators and yeah. universities and organizations how are we really truly creating safe spaces for our employees and for our you know supervisees um and so that's kind of what i'm doing i i, I have a plethora of things to offer mm. um, and just finding out how to kind of hone in and, and make them impactful for the communities i serve cool awesome all right one last question uh, and, and just it's for, for sort of the time because I'm planning to release this episode before the third week of June. 
Mm -hmm. um, uh, because we have the Baba Conference coming up. Yes, yay! And, and I know, I know you're now a, a board member of Baba. The vice president. I sort vice of president. president. Uh, ooh, mm -hmm. Board member. Okay, so maybe just tell tell us a little bit about what's happening with Baba, what you're doing with Baba, and uh, and maybe what's what's you know maybe a little bit about the conference too for folks. Yeah, so I joined BABA. I remember seeing something early in its inception, and I was like, what? There's an organization for Black BCBAs. There there are Black BCBAs, because back then, I don't think the demographic data had come out from the board. And I was like, what? There's other Black BCBAs across my career. I had met one other one, and we were in direct competition with each other wow. at the position we worked at. Um, and so I, I, I hadn't had access to other black BCBAs. And so I was like, sign me up. I paid the membership fee. And I remember sending an email. I was like, what are you guys doing? And I got a response that said, we don't know yet. We're <laughs> just, we're just starting out. And I was like, anything that you need, like, you know, mm -hmm. count me in. Um, you know, and then they had reached out for a couple things. I think Denisha Jingles was on the board at the time and I had interviewed with her about something. I can't remember the details. And and then I was asked to come in as, as post-secretary. Um, Kat Jackson was was secretary at the time. And, and what I understand is that, and, and if you don't know Kat Jackson, um, phenomenal kind of just, I think, genius in bringing us together. So she mm. created the Baba group um, on Facebook where she was like, hey, if you're black and you're and you know a BCBA, like join us, which I didn't know about until mm. after I joined Baba. Um, but that turned into what we now know as Baba. Right. So the Facebook group is called Biba, Black in Behavior Analysis, and Baba is the nonprofit. Yeah. Um, and so her and I were co-secretary. I think it had turned into right this like fully fledged organization. Um, eventually I became the sole secretary. Um, and then more recently when it was time to transition roles, um, I was asked to be the vice president or I was asked to consider a different role. Um, and I got the vice president position. Mm. Um, and really our mission is to serve the black community. Um, I think that we lack resources. We lack kind of understanding of leadership opportunities. We lack scholarship opportunities. And so our mission is really to serve at its core. Um, as we've taken on kind of the role, Adrian Bradley did a phenomenal job kind of getting Baba to where it is through the pandemic. I think there was such a need and such a craving to be seen and to be heard. And she was at the helm of kind of creating a space where we were functioning and I think as we are continuing this work we a part of my role now as the vice president and Tia Glover is the is the current president we're really focusing on structuring the internal work right mm -hmm. it was like right behind the scenes there was so much going on and there was so much to kind of keep up with right the demand was so heavy and Adrian Bratley really carried that and so as we restructured our roles, we're really focusing on like slowing things down, getting systems in place, making things technological. We want this to be a legacy organization. So it's not just a fad. We're not just talking mm. about it because it's a popular thing to do, really creating a legacy. Um, and so that's kind of the work that we're doing now. 
Um, this will be our third annual conference. I was a part of the first one when it was online. We had our first in-person conference last year. Um, and the importance of this organization is to validate, I think, that 4% of BCBAs, and I don't know what the statistics are for RBTs, mm. um, school psychs, right? Like a community of people who have not had the opportunity to be seen or heard or validated, right? I like to tell this story. Richard C. Spates uh, was a forefather of ABA, right? And he mm. has been, you know, with the, with the science of ABA since its inception, but- yes discounted right his work yes. has been publicized we don't know his name baba found him and now we have this mm -hmm. award ceremony named awesome. after him because he was an innovator right and and it's stuff like that like dr nasia serencioni ulazi who had been working in the field for 30 years when i found her paper barriers to um to leadership yeah. with black women she like literally was talking mm. my language right but i had no idea that she yeah. existed and so Baba is so critical, not just for our community, it is, but to also like be the forefront of like this DEI work, right? Like, and we're not just about mm -hmm, DEI, mm -hmm. I want to make that very clear, but that we have important contributors to our science who are often discounted and their voices aren't heard and they're dismissed and their lived experiences aren't accounted for. And we really want to highlight mm. that work, right? And we're not saying that, no one else can be included in that, but we're really just trying to create a space where we're honoring the impact that so many clinicians have made in this science that aren't being noticed. And so our conference highlights these people and we get to get together and we get to kind of be a community. And it is just such a wonderful, like I, really truly a highlight of my career. You know, I've been, I've been trenches of this ABA space for 25 years and I am just thankful that I get to I'm getting emotional I just I'm so thankful that I have found my people and that I don't have to work so hard to like be who I am right it's just yeah. it's such a beautiful wonderful thing so we are very excited for BabaCon 2023 that's awesome so anything I mean I heard nothing but great things about last year's conference and like from a lot of people uh, and many who were not black, that it was the best mm -hmm. conference of the year by far in our field. Um, anything special happen in this year that's maybe different built from last year that's going to be yeah, cool? Yeah, lots of things. I think we get to honor our culture. So this mm. year we're really intentional about honoring our culture. So we're having a 90s themed, you know, mixer, which we're all really excited about, right? Mm. And some of the things that shaped us and who we are, right. That we're all that, that kind of connect us. Um, and, you know, the people who come who aren't black, really they're experiencing a different conference because mm. it is so communal. Right. So I think because we function in a society where everything is like individualized and every like mm. kind of hoarding resources, right. Like we're taught to kind of hoard yeah. These resources where like when you come into our Baba space, we're really intentional about creating safety, right? And mm. and and not just for like each other, but for everyone. We want yeah. you to feel welcomed. We don't want you to overstep, right? So don't come in telling us, right? Like not that we're above that reproach, but that really this is a space that we're sharing with you. Um, 
and you get to see a glimpse of how we function and mm. how we operate and how really we honor each other in community and we uplift and support each other. And so that's a highlight, the the, the awesome. Richard Bates Award. We have selected our two award winners and I could not be like more excited to present them. I won't share that here. If you, mm. you want to know, come and, and watch them be mm. honored with their awards. But yeah, there's just, there's a lot of, nuggets we have a really great obm track of speakers and nice. dynamic keynotes and so i think that anyone who attends is going to find lots of gems and i think you're going to walk away feeling not just that you're going to learn something about aba but that you're really going to experience what it feels like to mm -hmm. allow aba to take up a small portion of what we're there for but really feel the expanse of our community and feel the expanse of what we have to offer in any space that we occupy Exciting! wow all right yeah best pitch ever well let's, <laughs> let's leave it there and get folks excited um lots lots more opportunities i'm sure for folks if they want to chat with you they can go to the conference and, yes. uh, and meet Danielle in person. Danielle, this was wicked. I, I see why. The, the question is answered. This is why everyone has said your name. You are incredible. Thank you. I um, thank you for that, Ben. I, I hope that our conversation, I know there wasn't any real structure and I, I hope it, it's- There never is. You, and I hope that it's good for, for your audience. I yeah, hope that it was awesome. meaningful. No, thanks for coming on. That was wicked. Thanks for having me. All right.